Over the past month or so, following Easter, we've been looking at the places in the Bible where folks interact with the risen Jesus. Right? Because we know that the story didn't end with Jesus' resurrection. For the church, that was just the beginning of the story. Right? And so we've looked at Jesus' interactions with his disciples. We, we've watched him walk long, lonely roads with despondent disciples after they thought he was dead. Right? We've watched him shore up the doubts of his disciples and his interaction with Thomas. We've watched him forgive failures and restore Peter. Right? Uh, and in today's passage, his time with his disciples is coming to a close. And so with that, with that, Matthew closes his gospel, and we're going to look at the last words uh, in this narrative that Matthew gives us of Jesus' ministry on earth. And so before he goes and he, and he leaves his disciples, he leaves them with a mission, right? And that mission has defined the trajectory of the church for the past about 2,000 years, right? The mission is make disciples, and he's walked with them for three years. He's been their leader. He's been their teacher. He's been their master. They've been his followers. They've been his students. They've been his apprentices. All of these encapsulate disciple. Right? And, and he's telling them the time has come for you to be disciples who make disciples. Right? So Jesus isn't going to physically mentor these apprentices anymore. He's turning it over to the 11 men that he's trained right? to start multiplying, right? to start a multiplying movement. Right? And to give you a flash forward, in 2015, the Pew Research Center estimated that there were 2.3 billion Christians on earth. Right? An incomparable movement in history. There's nothing like it. And it started with this command, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right, we, we have a name for this today. We call it the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission that Jesus has given his church. But would you be surprised to learn that in the first few centuries, of the church's existence, believers actually considered this task to be completed. Right? In the early church tradition, it was believed that extraordinary Christians, these apostles, they had already carried out the Great Commission. They divided uh, the known world into 12 parts, right, for 12 apostles, that's including Paul, and they set out preaching the gospel, planting churches. And so what were these ordinary Christians doing in those early years, those years of persecution, right? We know that communities were still being formed all over the known world. We know steady growth was still happening, but if their focus wasn't on imitating the Apostle Paul's adventurous missions, like to unknown places and faraway peoples, what exactly were they doing? I'm reading a book right now. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And it takes a look at church history and like the improbable rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it's fascinating how the early church was marked not by an angst to grow, right? Not by influencer status, not by marketing strategy, not by government influence. It was marked by patience. It was marked by love. It was marked by living like Jesus in a rough Roman world, 
right? Living like Jesus. That was their focus. And somehow they laid the foundation for this unprecedented growth in human history. And I want to talk about these words that Jesus left us with and not what they mean for Christians living in the second and third centuries, right? But what they mean for us today. I see three universal facets in Jesus's commission in this passage. And so I want to look at depth in each, uh, each of those. See, if we examine this call, we could break it down into three parts. Invitation, identification, and integration. So we're going to talk about these three things. If you're the type of person that takes notes, these are kind of the three slots under which all the sermon is going to fall. And so invitation, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. Right? There's invitation embedded in that. Identification, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit integration, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, right? Living lives where Jesus's teachings are integrated into your thoughts, your patterns, your behaviors, right? So let's just start. Let's look at the invitational aspect of Jesus's command to make disciples. Now, first, we need to talk about what a disciple is, right? That's not a common word that we use outside of religious context these days, and, and, you know, the church, Christians, we like to make up our own words uh, in Christianity. And so we've turned this noun into a verb, right, to disciple. Like, are you being discipled? Who are you discipling, right? When in reality, what we're asking is, who are you making disciples of, right? This passage starts off in verse 16, telling us that there were 11 disciples uh, with Jesus, right? He gives this commission to them, 11, that's 12 minus Judas, and, and the disciple relationship, it doesn't really exist in many forms today, but uh, in Jesus' day, rabbis, Jewish teachers, they would take on disciples, right? And they'd train them in the scriptures as, as their teachers, as their spiritual guides. And Jesus did this most intimately with his 12, right? 11 became apostles, and we see in the Bible that along with them, there were lots of other men and women that were called disciples that were following Jesus during his ministry on earth. They're with the apostles uh, at the beginning of the church after Jesus ascends to heaven. They're in the upper room with them. But Jesus's way of discipleship, it was a call to follow him, to be taught by him, and to become like him. And, and this theme continues as his disciples make disciples. And it takes shape, really, a, a great term for it is spiritual formation. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul talks about believers being transformed into the image of Christ. Right? Not physically formed to look like him, but a spiritual transformation that results in a changed life. And so, in short, we could say that disciples are believers in Jesus in a state of spiritual formation toward Christ-likeness, right? Believers in Jesus in a state of spiritual formation toward Christ-likeness. That might happen at a different speed for everybody, right? But to be a disciple of Jesus is to believe in him and to follow him, right? One naturally comes before the other. And so to be a disciple maker is to be actively involved in another person's journey toward faith 
and or their spiritual formation in Christ. Right? To be actively involved in that process is to be a disciple maker. Right? So whether they're a believer and you're sharing and showing Jesus to them in everyday life, or whether they're um, a believer and you act, you act, you're actively involved in their spiritual formation, that is what's considered making disciples. Right? Non-believers, believers, showing them Jesus, helping them grow toward him. A lot of times in the church, we've had this vision of discipleship as this one-on-one relationship, a younger person paired with maybe an older, seasoned Christian going through a workbook, and it can certainly take that form, and that's not bad in and of itself. But there are times when this notion can dominate our idea of what discipleship looks like, and we can put discipleship in a compartment, right? We can think of it as informational, an information transfer, I remember when I first became a Christian, the discipleship program was to pair younger believers with older Christians and to walk through a workbook on the foundations of the Christian faith, which again, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. But I was paired with someone I had never met before. We had no interaction outside of our times at a coffee shop or on Sunday. It, was, it felt very awkward. It felt very forced. I have no memory of what, I've, what I learned from that. It, it fizzled out after a few meetings. But that was my introduction to what discipleship was, right? Getting paired up with somebody, meeting at a coffee shop, answering questions, right? It reminds me of a story I heard actually the other day where a Christian man, he was sitting at Panera, and he started to overhear two people uh, having kind of a discipleship conversation, working through a workbook, some rigorous material. And naturally, his interest was piqued because when you start to hear those key words, Jesus and different things, and you're a Christian, you're like, oh, what's going on over there? Uh, they finished walking through all this material, and they got up, and then one said to the other, so are you married? Do you have any kids? Right? It was clear that they didn't even know each other. And when Jesus says, make disciples, he's saying it to the disciples that he walked intimately with for three years. He doesn't simply mean pass on information that I've passed on to you. And we're going to talk about that a little later too. Uh, Disciples are believers, right, in spiritual formation, and disciple makers are helpers along that way. Right? They're Christians who live invitational lives. Right? Jesus' disciples are walking invitations into a deeper and more dynamic relationship with him. And we get there by creating deeper and more dynamic relationships with one another, right? with our neighbors. And that takes us outside of just our Sunday gatherings. Right? Invitations are sent. They don't, they don't stay in your house. If you're sending an invitation, you send it out, right? You put it in the mail, right? They're sent to people. And Jesus sends his disciples, right? He tells them, go. He doesn't say, go and start Sunday services all over the globe, teaching people to attend regularly, volunteer often, and give generously, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say create cozy communities that provide people an escape from the world and the people living in it, right? And if you ever get around to it, invite somebody. No, right? He sends us to people. He sends us to our neighbors. He sends us to the nations, right? Who are sometimes, the nations are in our very neighborhood, right? 
It's easy to get programmatic and, and to default to a Sunday-only mentality as a Christian. And believe me, I love Sundays. That's why we're here, right? Sunday's a great staple of the Christian life, the gathering to worship, right? I love gathering and worshiping. I love seeing everybody's faces on Sunday. But what if instead of Sunday being the it thing, what if Sunday were the culmination of a week of being on mission together? Right, where we come together in joy over what God is doing in our lives and the lives of those around us in our neighborhood, in our community. Right? We come together to worship him. We come together to praise him for what he's doing. We come together to pray for the salvation of the people that we love. We come together for him to remove, ask him to remove obstacles to the mission that we're trying to carry out. Right? Asking him to move in Hyannis and on Cape Cod. What if that were Sunday gathering? Right? So often instead, Sunday steals the show. Right? It's work to host a Sunday gathering, especially here. Right? It requires time. It requires money. It requires physical effort, preparation. And we do it every single week. But you know, even for this church, that's not how we started. Right? That's not how Seven Mile Road started. And it's not the vision of this church to simply meet on Sundays. Right, we started around the dinner table. Right? In September 2019, a small group of us gathered around my family's table and we shared meals right? in a shared effort. People brought food that they could. We had good conversation. We opened the Bible afterward and we talked about it in a way that if you had never read it before, you could understand it. And if you had been reading it your whole life, you could still be enriched because we believe that God's word can be accessible to anyone, right? Our guests, they spanned the spiritual spectrum. We had non-believers there. We had newer believers. We had people we just met, old friends, even family. We had mature believers. And there was an understanding among the mature believers that we are making disciples together, right? We're not here to get the right answers, we're not here to show off our knowledge, to, to build up our knowledge. We're here to make Jesus accessible and known through his word and by how we love one another. That's how this church started. And this community grew. And at one point, we had near 25 people at these dinners at our house. And we, one time, we even had a woman who had just moved from Puerto Rico, and she spoke Spanish. And we had to pull up a Spanish Bible on the iPad. And my mother-in-law was translating for her so that she could stay in the loop, right? And things were really progressing. And these, these were beautiful meetings that birthed this church. Right? And about six months into it comes March 2020, right? And COVID hit. And we had to move to Zoom for things, right? And, and you can't share a meal over Zoom. It's not the same thing. We moved to more programmatic style community that, that kept us together as much as we could, right? We, we're here on the other end of it, and we're grateful for that. We did Bible studies, we discussed sermons, we did courses, online prayer meetings, but the outward focus in trying to survive, it diminishes, right? But not our heart, right? Our heart for it hasn't diminished, but our practice has diminished a little bit because we can only do so much. 
right? We got to gather on Sundays outdoors uh, at Asselton Park over there by the harbor for two summers, which was awesome, being out and about in our town together. We met new people, and then we finally got this space in September 2021. And I'm grateful we've been able to regularly get together. That is a gift. And we've made it work with meals after our Sunday gatherings. God has been gracious, and we have been flexible. But if you've joined us since we've been meeting here, right, you're experiencing somewhat of a concession on our part. Right? This is not all that Seven Mile Road is. Right? We're doing what we can with what we have and battling unpredictability with a small team of committed volunteers. And it takes a lot to keep it all together. Right? But we don't want the maintenance of church to consume the mission of church. Right? Doing church is not as important as being the church. Right? And we'll burn out if this is all there is. Right? And so we want to start doing things that are more like that, but we need to get back and root our identity in this commission that Jesus has given us. Right? In the summer, we do want to do more open table meals at my family's house, and we are going to try to kick off these open table gospel community get-togethers that we were doing before uh, come the fall with a seat at the table for anybody interested, right? Just Christians making a hospitable space for community and conversation. But invitation is embedded in the Great Commission, right? Jesus says, go. And he says, go to everyone. All nations include everyone, especially the unfamiliar, right? Everyone is invited. And that conflicts with our natural desires for comfort, right? Because it means you need to go to people who aren't like you, right? People that annoy you, people that scare you, people that intimidate you, people that act like they're better than you, people that have more or less than you do, people who speak different languages than you do, people who have different customs, eat different food, Right? This becomes a problem for the Apostle Peter later. There are two instances in the Bible where he's apprehensive about this part of the command. Right? One where God has to make it clear to him that he can enter the house of a non-Jewish person, that that person is indeed not unclean. That's in Acts 10. And there's another where he shies away from eating with international folks in front of his Jewish friends, Galatians 2. And the Apostle Paul confronts him, and he says this. He says that he stands condemned. Those are heavy words for an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because our identity as disciples of Jesus isn't in our nationality or any other earthly category. Disciples identify themselves differently. And Jesus embeds that in this commission, right? Invitation is embedded in there, but also identification. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, immersing them, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the triune God, right? The Trinity, right? Baptized means to immerse. 
God in three persons, right? The Trinity. And this is important, right? Identification is embedded in the Great Commission. It's more than just saying, dunk them in some water, you know, go and, go and dunk them in some water. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. And the first thing he mentions is baptism, right? Then he's going to talk about what to teach them. But this is, this is important. The order of that is important. And I want to point that out because once you see it, you'll start to see this all over the Bible. So often in the Bible, before a command is given, before there's an imperative, right, something you should do, before that or very close to it, look for it, you will see an affirmation of your identity before God. You'll see a confirmation uh, that you should do this because you are this. Right? In fact, the book of Ephesians, it spends three whole chapters telling Christians who they are before giving one instruction on how to live. That's God's way. Grace first. Right? Identity first. And in this commission, Jesus prioritizes the identification with the Trinity before teaching commands. Right? Because our behavior flows from who we are, not the other way around. Right? We can't behave our way into becoming children of God. We can't behave our way to salvation. We can't behave our way to receiving the Spirit of God. These are gifts that are given because of the work of Christ. Well, let me show you how this plays out because it's pretty cool. The, the word baptize, it does literally mean immerse, right? When we get baptized in our church, we immerse people in water, right? And that's a visible and tangible way for them to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? You go down and you come up just like he did, right? The water is associated with cleansing. Jesus has cleansed us once and for all, right? That's why we don't get baptized over and over again, right? And here Jesus says to make disciples, baptizing them in the name Right In the name, that is identity language, immerse them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And now there's this vertical and horizontal aspect to each one of these identifications. And by that I mean it involves our relationship with God, right, vertical, and our relationship with others, horizontal, right, vertical God, horizontal, you and me. Immerse them in the name of the Father, God the Father. So vertical, we are accepted by God the Father because of the work of Jesus. Right? In John 1.12, we're told that those who receive Jesus are given the right to be called children of God. Right? There's adoption language all over the Bible because Christ the Son has given sonship to us. Jesus tells us we can pray, our Father in heaven. That's our vertical relationship. Baptize them in the name of the Father, in the love of the Father. And if he's our Father, then by default, we, the church, are siblings. Right? That's the horizontal relationship that pours from this identification with God. The Father makes us family. Right? To be a disciple is to be a growing child of God among growing siblings. 
to make disciples is to attend to the delivery of the children of God and to help them grow up. Baptize them in the name of the Father. And baptize them in the name of the Son, right? Jesus. The Father makes us family. The Son makes us saved servants. Right? Vertically, this points to our salvation, right? We had a need, and Jesus met it. Right? We identify with Jesus in his sonship because he first identified with us in our sin. Right? Jesus took our sin upon himself. This is the gospel. He died on the cross to absolve us, taking the penalty of sin upon himself, and he was raised from the dead right? as imperishable as the promises of God that he secured for us. Right? We have security because of his work on the cross. We're assured that we have been cleansed from all sin, because, not because of the water of baptism, but because our baptism is in the name of Jesus. Baptize them in the name of the Son. Vertically, the Son makes us saved. Horizontally, he makes us servants. Right? Jesus is God, but he's also the big brother, right? And he shows the way, and he came as a servant. Mark 10.45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, identification with Jesus makes his disciples servants. That's who we are. It's not just what we do. We worship a servant king. And we are sent to serve, to meet needs, to consider others more highly than we consider ourselves, to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. And so to be a disciple is to be a saved servant progressing in Christ-like humility, right? To be a saved servant progressing in Christ-like humility. That's the aspect that the Son brings, right? To make a disciple is to invite neighbors to faith in Jesus and to help one another grow in Christ-likeness. Baptize them in the name of the Son and baptize them in the name of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 1.13 to believers, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that the Spirit of God who was among them would soon dwell in them after he left. He says, it's even better for you that the Spirit comes than that I stay. Right? He talks about how the Spirit is going to testify about Jesus. And so vertically, identification with the Spirit, it looks like an intimate connection with God. Right? To the point that God dwells in the very hearts of his people. Right? But he's also a seal. Right? He's the confirmation that God will complete the work that he's begun in us. Right, the one working in us to make us like Christ, the one who will bring life to our mortal bodies at the resurrection. That's Romans 8, 11. So we're connected to Christ through the Spirit. And this is all just a very brief overview. There's so much more that could be said. That's vertical, horizontal. The Spirit empowers us for mission. To carry out this great commission, we need the power of the Spirit. Right? He empowers us. He empowers us to proclaim the gospel. 
In the book of Acts, we see him do that. We see him empowering disciples to proclaim the gospel and even to the point of miraculously doing it in the many languages of surrounding crowds who are visiting Jerusalem. We see him inspiring a sermon that Peter delivers in Jerusalem. We see him helping Paul make mission-related decisions. Where am I supposed to go next? Right? And the church is given a diverse set of what are called spiritual gifts, empowering us to build one another up. Right? God is a missionary God. We see that in the coming of Jesus. He sent his son, right? We see that in the sending of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' ascension, right? To accompany and empower the church. Even if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Right? When, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing you see God do is to go looking for Adam in the garden. God is a missionary God. Our identification with the Spirit contrasts us with the world. Right? It makes us look different. Paul says to walk in step with the Spirit is to live a countercultural life because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, things that aren't in abundant supply uh, in the world today, right? Galatians 5, through 23. Now, this alone is a testimony to the world. If you are walking in the Spirit that way, this is a testimony to the world, and it's how I mentioned that the early church shined and made Christ known in a dark world. Right? Make disciples, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. To be a disciple is to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, growing in the heart of God for the lost. To make disciples is to be sent in the power of the Holy Spirit and to share the truth about Jesus. The Father makes us family, the Son makes us saved servants, and the Spirit makes us missionaries. If we could sum all this up into an identity, we would say that the church is a family of servant missionaries. Right? Invitation and identification, they're embedded in Jesus' great commission. And so now let's talk about where integration comes into play. And by integration, I mean integrating Jesus' commands into your whole life, right? As opposed to compartmentalization. Right, keeping areas, areas of your life separated, like Jesus is over here, other stuff of life is over here, Jesus' people are over here, other people are over here. Right? Jesus tells the eleven, make disciples, baptizing them. That's the first sub-command, identity, right? But then he says, teaching them, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And when he says observe, he doesn't mean watch, right? He doesn't mean like observation. He means observe, like observing the law, the way you observe the law, to obey, right? To put it into practice, to allow it to alter your behavior in conformity to the command, right? So what are these commands, Right? All the commands, right? Should we go through the book of Matthew, find every imperative, every command that Jesus ever gave to his disciples, jot those down so that we can track how well we're doing with obeying? Right? Should we do that with the whole Bible? Like, where do we stop? I'm not saying we wouldn't benefit from, from a little Bible study there, but um, if that's done with the right heart, 
But if we do that so that we can feel satisfied and check off boxes and feel like people who are doing all the right things, then Jesus had a way of frustrating people who kept checklists like that, right? Uh, if that's us, if we feel like we need that, then maybe we need to go back to the immersion piece, place our security in the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I think there's an easier way to get to the heart of the matter, and Jesus has given us an easier way, right? Uh, when we look at Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, 36, Jesus is approached by an expert in the law, a, a Bible expert. And he asks Jesus, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus answered him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. This is it. These are the commands that Jesus is talking about in a nutshell. And of course, they're not all that Jesus commanded. And the Bible gives us some very important ways that those play out in our everyday life and relationships. That's why we have all those teaching letters from the apostles in the Bible. They tell us how to work that out. But this is what the disciples of Jesus are about. We are about loving God and loving our neighbors. Note that he doesn't say, teach them the commands. Right? He doesn't say, teach them the commands. He says, teach them to observe the commands. Right? He's not looking for an information exchange. Remember, we talked about that. Discipleship is not an exchange of information or a, a passing on of information alone. He's telling them that to make disciples is to teach people what obedience to Jesus looks like. Right? Of course, they need to know the commands, Right? But Jesus is calling for visible discipleship, stuff people can see. Right? This will cause what, what I call a missional contrast between you and the world when you're living like Jesus. And by that I mean the very difference following these two commands, loving God and loving your neighbors, the very difference that that will make in your life will cause you to stand out for better or for worse. People will ask you questions. Why are you doing that? Why are you hanging out with this person? Right? Something's different about you. If you're serving forgotten people and places, neighbors might even try to attribute that to you being a do-gooder or, or a better person than they are. Don't let them do that. Tell them the truth. You don't have to be weird about it. You don't have to cite Bible passages. You don't have to give them a sermon. You don't have to be dismissive and say, no, all glory to God. Right? You can just tell the truth. Right? If you don't know what to say in the moment, that's okay. Be ready next time. Right? Rehearse it. Practice it. This is what the early church did. They, call it, they called it habitus, and it was that they would practice their responses to, to people. They'd practice their responses to persecution. What would I do if I'm put in jail? What will I say to the jailer? What will I do if I'm tortured, right? These, these really big things. If they can, could have done that for those things, we can do it for simple conversations, right? So that you are ready to give an answer, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone 
who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Be prepared. Let's take that seriously, right? So that we no longer feel blindsided about how to share our faith winsomely and truthfully and in a way that shows that it's not just for us. It's actually an invitational faith, right? To integrate the gospel into our entire life. See, I think we miss sometimes the fact that so much of being a missionary is to simply be a disciple of Jesus who pursues loving God and neighbor and then just being yourself all the time, everywhere you go, and being truthful and not succumbing to the fear of being ridiculed for your faith. Right? Remember your baptism. Right? Child of God. Servant of God missionary of God, secure in God, and then go for it, right? And don't worry, don't worry about inviting people to church as your main thing. I can't remember where, but I had seen somewhere where people tried to get folks to, they do these incentives to invite people to church and we'll donate XYZ number of money or a turkey on Thanksgiving for every person that you bring to church. And to me, that just incites anxiety, Right? Not to mention the odd thing about like connecting conditions to loving your neighbors. But churches do this kind of thing. Okay? Don't worry about inviting people to church because here's what we need to realize. I heard this said once and it really lit a light bulb for me. Sunday gathering, what we're doing right now, is a spiritual rhythm for Christians. Before you go inviting people into a rhythm, invite them into a relationship with you. Right? Relationship before rhythm. That's not to say that non-Christians can't come to church and that they can't benefit from coming to church. If they want to come, if they ask to come, if they seem ready to be asked to come, ask them to come. We want them here. I think that it's a wonderful thing. But recognize that this thing that we do every week that's normal for you now but it's not super normal for other people it's not don't let that be the first encounter that your neighbors have with your faith just a, a blind invitation to church right that's the precise reason why today can't be all that there is to the life of a disciple right you are the disciple makers Right? I am just one of you. I'm, I'm trying to, in planting this church, we are trying to uh, help encourage you, right? Trying to build structures and opportunities for your growth and, and for us to do this thing together. Right? Because we don't do it alone. Right? The Father makes us family, right? So we're called to make disciples together. And not just that, the very nature of being a disciple means that you are also a disciple maker yourself. Right? He said, teach them all that I have commanded you. Well, one of his commands is this commission. Right? Teach them the commission. There's a, there's a reproductive aspect that is built into this. Right? Pastors are not the only disciple makers. They're not even the chief disciple makers. Think about this. If I, if I talk to one person every day and, and had a favorable reaction with each of these people. Each of them became a believer every single day. There would be 365 believers by the end of the year. 
right? That'd be pretty crazy growth. We wouldn't be able to fit in this space anymore. Crazy growth for our church, right? If I did that for the next 30 years, there'd be about 11,000 people who came to know Jesus through interactions with me. Now, that's pretty amazing, right? But think about this. If I chose just two people a year and I walked with them and I trained them as disciple-making disciples, we'd have only two disciples by the end of the year, right? And if those disciples the next year with me made disciples, we'd have six disciples that stemmed from that original effort. And so after two years, we'd have six disciples, where in the other, in the other method, we'd have 730, right? And so at the start, this looks really foolish, right, for two years. And most people would scoff at this approach. Right? But if we kept that up, by the time we made it to 30 years, there would be over 1 billion disciples, right? Not 11,000, 1 billion, right? That's the difference between simply adding disciples and multiplying. That's the difference between this exponential effect. If you go even back to... Um, God's great command in the beginning of Genesis when he says be fruitful and multiply, right? Just even multiplying a family, that is an exponential way of growing. And in this great commission, there's this exponential way of growth for the church that is built into that and that I think has happened throughout history. There's a difference between just adding disciples Right? And, and a good portion of church culture it operates through that addition mentality, right? One influential leader, and, and somebody's touched by what they say. Somebody really connects with the way that that person teaches, right? One influential leader, and then they bring their friends to that person, right, to hear sermons at a church. And then these churches grow, and people are amazed at how quickly they grow, right? But what would it look like if we took the slower approach, right? And I recognize there's no guarantee. A billion disciples, that's not guaranteed. We're working with people. They're, they're unpredictable. We're working with the Spirit of God. He's unpredictable. There are variables. But those exist no matter which approach you take. What if we took the approach that doesn't try to cash in early but had the long haul in mind? I mean, what if we lived lives of invitation, firm in our identity with our triune God, right? Living integrated lives that leave the aroma of Christ wherever we go, ready to give an answer for our hope. I want to let you dream about that. I want to challenge you to dream about that with me. What would it look like even if you just had one person that you walked with? Because people need Jesus on Cape Cod. They need him everywhere, but they need him here, and this is where we are. They don't need another church service. They don't need another pastor. They need Jesus. And if you are a believer today, you have him. You have him to share just as much as I do, just as much as whatever pastor out there does. And so let's go forth in his name, sharing Jesus with our neighbors, staying true to our church's mission. Our mission is to build thriving communities of neighbors who love God and who love one another. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And don't miss this really, really important tag on the end. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age.